welcome to The Bomb, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, kids, today's guest is making his third appearance on the farm, and I could not be more excited. He is a former contributor to Zero Books and the interdisciplinary web journal Modern Mythology. More recently, he's become the host of a little podcast known as Parallax Views. Few of you may have heard of it. I'm actually a bit embarrassed to say I just watched the movie Parallax Views uh, for the first time last night. Uh, But fortunately, this interview did uh, remind me of that major uh, blank spot in my film watching cv so thank you for that uh my current guest now mr jg michaels and also thank you for dropping by tonight sir more than glad to do it at some point we'll have to talk about uh the warren Beatty classic the parallax view now that you've seen it <laughs> yeah 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 no absolutely it's uh that was a whole great films in that whole era along with was it three days of the condor marathon man the conversation um I don't make them like that anymore, to put it mildly. <laughs> All right, we've got another guest with us as well, and this one is making his farm debut. He is the creative force behind the YouTube channel Reality Theory and the author of the book Inside the CIA Secret War in Jamaica. Folks, I give you guys Casey Gain. Casey, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Oh, thanks for having me, man. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, JG's great. I've been on his podcast before. Your podcast seems really great, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you guys about some really interesting subjects going on that have been in the news. Absolutely. Well, typically, when I've had JJ on before, we have talked about movies, and this time around, we are going to start out doing the same. But the movie we're using as a launching point is a bit different than the ones we've previously covered. It's called The Sound of Freedom, and unlike a lot of the other films, it kind of sucks that J.G. and I have talked about, but that's really beside the point. Many of you are probably aware of this thing. It dropped this summer and became an unexpected hit. For the right, it is a major statement on sex trafficking. For the left, it is a continuation of QAnon and like hysterias. In point of fact, Sound of Freedom unveils a shadowland both political narratives can scarcely comprehend. The film is based upon the life of the curious figure of Timothy Ballard and his equally curious organization, Operation Underground Railroad, or R as it is often known by its acronym. It's quite a story, one with some truly chilling implications. So on that note, let us start the show.
So let's start off with the film Sound of Freedom. What is it about and what was the reception like? You want to take this one, JG? Yeah, I mean, so it's more or less uh, the alleged, I would say, fabricated story of a former Department of Homeland Security official by the name of Tim Ballard and his, I guess, through through his eyes, his like heroic journey of saving uh, children from child trafficking. Basically, I, I mean, the only way I would describe it is, uh, you know, to say it's like um, a sort of right wing Mormon version of the Taken movies or maybe the Rambo sequels or better yet, uh, my friend Damian Moore from American Crime Journal said, you know, it's more or less a remake of uh, Commando with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Alyssa Milano and Raidon Chong. I mean, it's kind of like this QAnon-adjacent movie, but not exactly QAnon, about child trafficking and vigilante must save the day. So, I mean, that's how I would sum it up. It's a good point there, JG, and I'm glad that you uh, brought the Rambo movies and Commando up. Uh, this was something that Edmund Berger and I recently talked about with Far West when we were getting into um, some of the intrigues at the... Um, the Reagan era, the during the Reagan era that the administration was involved in. And it's fascinating when you look at just the role that some of these movies like the Rambo films were playing. On the one hand, they really pushed the POW narrative, uh, which was a really, really big thing in the 1980s in Viet, uh, for Vietnam. There were all these... Well, re really specifically, we're talking about the sequel, right? You know, yeah, like First Blood, Rambo 2. It's, it's yeah. almost like you're watching two different movies in a way, right? Because I'm not, I'm not saying like First Blood is like a, a super anti-war movie, but it, it is this weird movie in which like, you know, a Vietnam War vet and a Korean War vet just keep escalating and and uh, sort of trying to out-masculine the other. And it just ends with everyone, you know, hell going, uh, hell going to a handbasket or whatever the saying is, right? All hell breaks loose. Uh, whereas like Rambo First Blood Part 2 it's just like, rah, rah, America, Rambo's going to save the POWs. Long live Reagan, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's great. And then the third one, of course, got, goes into the whole thing with the Soviet <laughs> Afghan. The brave fighters of the Mujahideen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it's... They became, what, I, what, what I meant was they become progressively more... Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's American propaganda by the third movie. You know, the second movie, too, but like... It's just, it's an interesting series of movies, that original Rambo trilogy is, you know, I mean, the first one's like a serious drama, but it becomes cartoonish by the second movie. And, you know, by the third movie, it's just full on with the, you know, rah-rah America. Well, that's what happens when you bring James Cameron in, um, who, in fact, actually wrote the screenplay to the second one, or at least co-wrote it, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's interesting that the Rambo 2 that we see by the second one was based on um, Bo Gritz, I believe is how Yeah, Bo Gritz. Mm -hmm. um, very fascinating character. And during this whole era, he was being used, well, not the whole era, but at one point uh, during the 80s, he was being used as an asset of the intelligence support activity, uh, which is the super secretive and elite um, intelligence component of the Joint Special Operations Command. This was uh, one of the ISA's first kind of forays into this murky netherworld, and Greets was uh, one of their agents. So 
this is also kind of unfolding at a time when you had this whole network of Vietnam veterans that were being recruited through, uh, you know, things like Soldier of Fortune magazine to participate in a lot of the quote unquote anti-communist struggles that were unfolding around the globe at the time, not just in Central America and the Caribbean, but also in Southern Africa and a lot of other regions as well. And uh, the whole POW thing is important in that context because frequently um, POW circles and the supporters domestically were networks that were used as recruitment pools to find a lot of these veterans for mercenary activities so that's that's something about the rambo movies i've always found to be <laughs> especially insidious and i think that's something to kind of keep in mind when we unpack some of the people behind this and the possible role that sound of freedom could be playing in that context um but before we get into some of the good stuff here let's get into a few of the people that were actually involved in the movie so does anything have uh anything on the guy who directed it i think it's aldrino gomez monteverde or something like that anyone i mean he's been hard at work uh from my understanding uh promoting it not even just in the u.s but i think mexico as well so i mean there there is like an international push for this film i don't know if it was the director or maybe it was one of the producers that is really pushing it in Mexico, but I, I just find it very interesting. The movie, um, it's not just a thing that is being talked about in the U.S., or at least it's not just being promoted is what I should say in the U.S., because as we know, there's been a um, pay it forward sort of scheme this movie has done where you can pay uh, to get the movie shown at your theaters or to like get tickets to people that are underprivileged. I mean, in fact, at the end of the movie, they say, if you want to help child trafficking, you know, do this, this and this so that the movie can be shown at more theaters and underprivileged people can get tickets. So how how popular this movie actually is, is kind of uh, there's like an asterisk beside it, because it's definitely been a very successful movie. I mean, it's made over 100 million at the box office now, but there's sort of an asterisk beside that because it's like, well, how much of that is due to this like pay it forward scheme that they have going? I mean. I don't I think once you pass the 100 million mark there's more to it than just you know the pay it forward scheme. I think it's been sort of successful at infiltrating the popular culture, but I'm going a little bit off topic there. No, that's a very good point though because I mean it does seem like you know as we've kind of suggested before this is more an um a piece of propaganda effectively and it would make sense that you're basically seeing this kind of uh covert funding source for a lot of it i mean i'm guessing if you probably pull back the veil you might find just a couple of uh you know major foundations or think tanks or something on the right are actually the ones buying up a lot of these tickets uh which well i was gonna say even tim ballard himself right yeah like, up or until, possibly up, yeah, up, or, up, up until recently ballard was like this i i don't know if he was the ceo but he was one of the head people head honchos as they say at uh the nazarene fund or the Nazarene trust mm -hmm. uh which is that's a glenn beck organization so i mean yeah. he's out now he's not even with our anymore uh but you know i mean there's a lot of organizations that we'll be talking about during this episode yeah so yeah. it's interesting when you see the the Nazarene fund and connecting that back to rambo three and you kind of even have 
another side of Tim Ballard, where he's this savior going to Afghanistan and saving these Christians from the Taliban, which is quite the opposite of Rambo 3, in which, you know, Rambo came to save the Taliban from, from the Russians. And, and connecting that to kind of Bo Grit in, in, in Rambo, and that Bo Grit actually wound up exposing the CIA for uh, selling opium in... Um, the Golden in, Triangle thing, right? Within the yeah, within the Golden Triangle, he exposed. Uh, he interviewed Kun Sa, who was a big time narco trafficker, who implicated all sorts of people like uh, Ted Shackley, a CIA agent, Richard Armitage, who is uh, Colin Powell's guy. So it, it, it's kind of an interesting paradox of him being this kind of fake Rambo slash to catch a predator, a team vigilante who you know saves ch children like it's an '80s movie. And the, and the reality of people who do what he is, you know, he started off in the CIA and I'm assuming he's kept CIA ties and uh, CIA is really not against child traffic and they seem to utilize it. So there's, there seems to be a lot of hypocrisy going on with with, with Ballard and interesting connections to Rambo in, in more than one way. Well, it's also worth noting, too, that uh, Bo Greets and uh, Ballard are also both Mormons as well. Another uh, component to this you know what? What's interesting is, I, I, and I could be getting this wrong, so don't quote me. Uh, but uh, Jose Gomez um, or Jose uh, Gomez Monteverde, Jose Alejandro Gomez Monteverde, I guess his full name. But um, the director, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't realize this uh, until looking it up, but uh, apparently he won like uh, an award at the Toronto International Film Festival, which is a very big film festival. Uh, he won the People's Choice Award for his first movie, Bella. And I think he's, I, I know his son is, is uh, you know, his middle, the middle name of his son is inspired by Pope Francis. So I guess, you know, uh, the director sort of has the Catholic connection when it comes to this movie. But almost everyone else involved seems to be, you know, heavily tied to Mormonism. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I thought it was, he was an interesting choice to direct it because it did seem like he was a fairly reputable filmmaker prior. Well, I mean, if you, if you won an award at TIFF, I mean, TIFF is like big in terms of the film festival scene. So uh, is he Mexican? Yes, he is. All right. That's interesting. And that's something that we'll probably get into um, as we get further into this conversation. But that could be a significant aspect of this. Um, but OK, so moving on to another guy who was involved in the film quite extensively. Uh, what's your guys thoughts on Jesus, a.k.a. Jim uh, Caviezel, uh, being cast in the lead role? You want to start us off with that one, Casey? Yeah, well, it's, of course, he played Jesus. So this kind of projects the Tim Ballard character as a kind of Jesus type character. And also I think through his personal and political views, he he has this kind of QAnon type conspiracy which he's been connected to, which is again is interesting because QAnon tends to be kind of very skeptical of intelligence agencies as crazy as they are. And then here you have him working with the CIA uh, officer, Tim Ballard and uh, Paul Hutchinson, who's like the big producer who's also um, allegedly trained by the CIA and um, Assad agents, um, who's the guy who kind of, you know, is the, the, the kind of helps them do these kind of uh, to catch a predator, Chris Hansen scenes where they pose as pedophiles and then they, you know, jump out with these kind of authorities and stuff like that. So it's interesting that Jim Caviezel is the take that it definitely makes it very much a Christian movement. And I think that's what kind of projected this to kind of like a, 
Christian right wing QAnon Coney 2012 type movement, which I think helped the movie propel to what it is, making it more of like a social movement than just a movie. But I think Jim Caviezel definitely helped because a lot of people still connect him with Jesus and uh, and he has a connection to the QAnon movement. So it's a nice little cross section of Trump supporters with the QAnons and the evangelicals that uh, Caviezel brings. Yeah, it's definitely a very symbolic casting choice, in my opinion, as well. Uh, JG, do you have any thoughts on it? Um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, he's been friends with, I mean, he worked with Mel Gibson on The Passion of the Christ. I mean, you know, he's a known QAnon adjacent person. I mean, I think he was at a church talking about, you know, deep underground military bases and spouting QAnon stuff. A few years back, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I think it's interesting that really outside of, I mean, you, you sort of uh, pointed out yourself, uh, Steve, but, you know, I mean, outside of The Passion of the Christ, it seems like no one knows any other movies he's been in. Which <laughs> is kind of, I mean, I do, I will say, I do like him in the movie The Highwaymen, if you've ever seen that, where he plays, uh, plays this guy whose wife gets killed by this serial killer who kills women with a 72 El Dorado. Uh, and he has to fight the serial killer in it. But literally, other than that and passion, I mean, I feel like people don't really uh, recognize him for much. But I, I do think he was named value. Was, I mean, the passion is such a notorious film. And then uh, I think the other big selling point was probably Mina Sorvino, who does have acting chops. So, um you know, I, I think they were able to sell the film in some ways to some people. Or it gives it gives the sheen of this being a professional film. Almost everyone else involved is a uh, is sort of an unknown, right? Um, yeah, I think getting Mina Sorvino was definitely like a big coup in terms of adding legitimacy to it. I mean, Gavizel, you know, is red meat for um, you know the target audience for this, but uh, Mina Sorvino at least maybe raises the stakes somewhat uh to film goers who would not necessarily be interested to a movie in a movie like this no i think that's very true i was gonna say too it's interesting one of the producers uh eduardo i don't want to mispronounce his name but verastuaco he's also a right-wing activist he may be the one that's promoting in mexico i don't know if it's him or the director they probably both are for all i know but uh it's it's interesting because he's also an actor in the movie. So, you know, there's uh characters in this movie that are doing double time producing it and acting in it and yeah. Fascinating. One final point I wanted to make about Jim Caviezel before we move along is uh specific allegations that he made in October 2021 uh in concerning satanic ritual abuse. This was at a keynote speech that he gave in Las Vegas, no less. So uh, his embracement of SRA claims is uh, something that we will probably uh, touch base on again before this chat is over with. So definitely keep that in mind as well, folks. One of the really interesting things to me about this movie is that it was shot in 2018. And it was supposed to drop in 2020. But it's just now making it to the screens here in 2023. And supposedly its release was held up by Disney. 
which in and of itself, if Disney did have some involvement with this, is quite interesting. Um, so are there any thoughts on the nearly half decade it took this movie to make it to the screen? Uh, do you want to start us off on this one, JG? Yeah, I don't want to mess anything up here because I, I'm more familiar with Ballard's sort of story than I am with the actual you know, story behind Sound of Freedom. But you're, you're right. I mean, it was on the shelf for years. I don't know if it, I think it got held up because 20th Century Fox was going to release it. I, I don't know if um, if that's the main reason, but my understanding was that Fox was going to release the movie, but then Fox got, you know, absorbed by Disney. <laughs> so that just messed with the uh, distribution of the film. And I'm assuming that happened with other movies as well, but... Uh, I know I don't know much else beyond that. I've heard I've heard a lot of people say, "Oh, Disney, just, this the movie Disney didn't want you to see." But I think I'm I'm more prone to believing that there were probably just issues with uh, the Fox Disney merger type stuff or the absorption of Fox into Disney. Yeah, I mean it's it's just such an interesting turnaround because typically when a movie sits on the shelves for five years um, and then get finally gets a release, usually it's uh you know like a direct to streaming thing or um you know it's just kind of I mean D- Disney said they didn't even know that this film existed when they purchased Fox. Yeah, so. it's just it's very odd that at least in theory it went from being almost this forgotten. A little scrap that Disney had picked up into becoming this sort of surprise box office hit uh, during December 2023. So that, you know, kind of further adds to the mythos that's being built up around this particular uh, picture. Uh, Casey, do you got anything to add, sir? Well, I think that it really didn't have too many big box office stars or any polls. And I think what they managed to really do to get it to even, I'm amazed it made it to theaters. I think a lot of big budget movies are on Netflix with way bigger stars than Paul Servino's daughter and um, Jim Caviezel that never see the light of day in theater. They go straight to Netflix, straight to Amazon, straight to Hulu or whatever. And I think that they kind of managed to kind of act like they were banned by Disney to kind of as a, as a selling point, especially at a point of right now where Disney's become a kind of right-wing enemy in Florida and kind of Disney's seen as this uh, pro-woke, anti-family values company. So I think they've taken advantage of the fact that that they were quote-unquote banned by Disney and really used like a, a Coney 2012 movement where you could really sell anything. And I think once you get people thinking that they're kind of contributing to a, a greater movement and helping save children, which I think they, especially um, in, in these kind of Christian communities that they cater to, I think they've really managed to way outdo like the, the box office selling power or the quality of the movie in terms of um, so- selling a product or, or, or getting people into theaters and actually managed to create a movement where people are, are almost like donating to charity rather than going to see a good movie. People are really think they're part of a movement saving children it's like coney it's like coney 2012 to me which was like 11 years ago where everybody said hey they're using child soldiers or this bad guy coney we you know whatever i don't know people did on they did crazy stuff for coney 2012 they did crazy social media posts they bought the t-shirts they didn't really have the movie but they did have that viral coney 2012 documentary so this is like a right-wing coney 2012 to me and that's how it just really capitalized off the 
the virality of being a positive children helping organization and really trying to paint the world as good versus evil and saying, hey, we're good, this is evil, help us. Do you guys think that the elections possibly had any uh, factor in this, uh, in the release time? Because originally it was scheduled for release, uh, release in an election year, and uh, now it's dropping um, the year before really the uh, campaign season really picks up. It might. I've, you Trump did I mean, I've thought office. about that. <laughs> yeah, I had kind of wondered if that might have been one of the reasons why they had decided to keep it in the shelves for a year or two as well. Like after they had kind of missed the uh, the window in 2020. Well, let's wait, you know, a little closer to get to the next election cycle to throw it out there. Uh, of course, it'll probably be making the rounds again on streaming and DVD by the time the election season really kicks up, too. So there's also that. Uh, all right. So, who is this Earl Buchanan guy who I gather is one of the film's antagonists? Uh, what is his story and how does it compare to the real life version? Uh, you got this one, JG? Yeah. So, Earl Buchanan in Tim Ballard's telling is a child trafficker, he's trafficking children, human trafficker, child sex trafficker. Uh, and he's like at the center of this. If you ever see Tim Ballard in an interview, he'll say this is all based on a true story. Just look up the arrest of Earl Buchanan. I arrested him. I did. I was involved in busting this guy, you know. But um, the thing is, Earl Venton Buchanan's whole story. It, I mean, it's it's not what Ballard says. I mean, it's bad on its own, but he wasn't a trafficker. He was a pedophile. Uh, the thing was, he didn't kidnap, you know, a five-year-old victim. Actually, Buchanan was a friend of the family. Uh, the victim's grandmother knew Buchanan since, you know, he was a young man. Um, the five-year-old victim was not a Mexican, but an American. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of lies. But the biggest lie at the heart of it is that there was no trafficking. And it's just really interesting because it's bad enough that Earl Buchanan was, you know, this horrible pedophile that groomed a child. Uh, But the child knew who this guy was. You know, that doesn't really fit the, oh, you know, strangers are out to kidnap your kid narrative that a lot of right wingers push when they talk about this stuff. Right. Um, And also Buchanan wasn't really deeply involved in busting this guy my understanding of how he got busted earl buchanan is that you know buchanan was went to i believe mexico with the kid and then you know the the grandmother knew this uh eventually buchanan comes back and border patrol stops him and you know everything's going fine until they check his camera this handheld camera, and they're checking the tape inside the camera. And uh, they wanted to see if it was functional and was not being used to conceal drugs because that's like policy with the Border Patrol. Well, it turns out when they watch the video, it shows this footage of Buchanan molesting a child. Uh, so that's how he got busted. Um, Ballard actually shows up 45 minutes later <laughs> After 
all of this happens where they find the video and all this stuff and he collects the VHS tape. So, I mean, Ballard wasn't really at the center of this arrest of Earl Buchanan. Uh, Buchanan himself was not involved in a child trafficking ring. I mean, he was involved in grooming children and filming it, but there was no trafficking involved. You know, it wasn't like this like big plot by some trafficker that's high up in society kidnapping stranger, you know, kidnapping children as a stranger. You know, so, uh, I mean, to me, Ballard's whole story is based on, like, an extreme twisting of the facts to the point of it being almost utterly fabrication, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it makes total sense, sir. Oh, um, I mean, like I said, it's bad enough that Buchanan is this, I mean, he is a child molester, but I don't know how you get from that to he didn't know the kid, you know? And, you know, it was part of a bigger conspiracy. No, I mean, the dude was just, I mean, he was grooming a child that he already knew. He knew, he knew the family. That's, I mean, it's just a very different, but equally messed up story. You know, it's just not the one that Ballard is telling. And I, I think there's a reason Ballard is, you know, not telling the true story there. And I think it's interesting that the victim wasn't Mexican, but an American, right? Because, I mean... A lot of this, it's just really interesting to me that a lot of this uh, feeds into like anti-immigration sentiment, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's been a kind of right-wing issue which they've attached to it, which might be having some roots and some legitimacy that there is a lot of child trafficking and drug trafficking that does come across the border, even though I think a lot of the anti uh border uh, activism on the right wing is definitely because of xenophobia and uh, anti-immigration. But that is kind of one thing that they've kind of added to it, you know, even from Trump saying, you know, they're bringing in rapists or, you know, child traffickers, coyotes bringing in this. So that's a kind of combined um, right wing thing that I think might be rooted in some legitimacy. And I think there might be some people on the left who want to have open borders for drug trafficking. I'm not sure if they're for pro child trafficking. But they're, you know, there's bad on the left and the right in terms of the issue of connecting this movie to the borders. Sure. I should mention everything I just told you, and I may have, like, not told it perfectly because it's been a while since I first covered this a few weeks ago, and I've done a million other things since then. But, I mean, this is all in the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol reports on the arrest of Earl Buchanan. So... To me, the like I said, I, I don't know what you think, Steve, but like to me, taking a story that was bad enough with the reality of it, this, you know, pedo, and turning it into like a trafficking story, I just I think there's something odd about doing that. And it I don't I don't see it as like I think it's a way for Ballard to create a name for himself. I mean, he, Border Patrol contacted Department of Homeland Security. Uh, investigation division after they found the videotape and it's Ballard comes 45 minutes later but in his narrative he's like the center of all of this you know what I mean like I mean what do you think Steve well no and that's that's what I was about to point out is there definitely seems like there has been I mean it's not just Buchanan it seems like a lot of the cases that are was involved in uh, there were a lot of embellishments to put uh, mildly around some of this stuff. Um, Vice had investigated some of this around 2020, and it revealed that 
basically it's uh, ours image was being uh massively pumped up by glowing media accounts and at times claiming that the rescued victims were human trafficking human trafficking victims when in fact they had actually freed themselves or were rescued by others so ours going around what i'm trying to say and claiming that they were freeing these individuals from human traffickers when in fact they had actually escaped themselves or some other people had gotten them out and then 2021, Vice had come up with further discrepancies in the accounts that um, R had given some of this stuff. And then on top of that, the personnel on R's vaunted jump teams, which were supposedly, uh, you know, the people that are out there pursuing these traffickers, they're supposed to be individuals with experience in this kind of thing. But in fact, many of them were R's own donors and second-rate celebrities so yeah you get the sense that almost everything about ballard's reputation as a adversary of human trafficking is basically a giant public relations scam well you know he originally wanted to do uh a reality show type thing about how he was his fight to end child trafficking. Oh, well, they actually if, did a couple of films on that. Um, yeah, yeah. though there were several documentaries. There was Operation Toussaint, I think, and then there was uh there was in 2018, 2020, they had triple take, and then ES uh, ESPN had aired a special with Ballard and uh Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Knight Mike Tomlin to highlight Ballard's work in Haiti, which is <laughs> real cute. I, I was gonna say too, I, I mentioned the reality TV thing because I I know that I'll send you a link to this, Steve. So maybe you could put it on the uh on on the website. But uh, you know, they're they're American Crime Journal, who to me they're the be all end all of all the journalism on this. I know people will bring up Anna Merlin and Tim Marchman's journalism advice, which it's fine work, but the fact is that American Crime Journal, Damian Moore specifically, and before him, Lynn Packer. I mean, Lynn Packer's been doing this for I think like five to eight years now looking yeah, into Operation in the- Underground uh yeah. Underground Railroad. But uh Lynn Packer and Damian Moore they were do they were doing this stuff long before Vice. And also for people that are like, oh I I hate Vice. They're too establishment. You can't really say that of an American crime journal. I mean they're a very small operation. It's very independent. But uh they actually have an image of Tim Ballard's they have a picture of the whiteboard where he's explaining how he's going to make money off this whole story. Um, and, you know, I mean, it seems like this was a way to really help him financially. Yeah. Which is interesting because one of the ways that he wanted to make money was by uh, adopting children, like, you know, to bring children to Utah to get adopted by Mormons, which is in a, a, a sort of like a form of human trafficking. He's profiting off trafficking children to be adopted by Mormons. And he he did adopt two children of, of his own, uh, two Haitian children of his own, which is interesting. Well, he also had help in high places, right? Like the uh, Utah Attorney oh, General, yeah. Sean Rays, mm-hmm. who's a big supporter of all this Operation Underground Railroad stuff. So, And and as I mentioned, Glenn Beck. Yeah, well, Reyes would even go on these raids with them. You know, he'd be kind of yeah. posing as an undercover Rambo person while Paul Hutchinson tried to pose as a child molester and these guys would and it's a kind of reverse thing I, I there's think I some weird like, accusations about about paul hutchinson and um some of the things he did during these raids by the way oh, I, i've heard a few but you could enlighten us 
Well, just just people saying that like he may have inappropriately touched someone in an attempt to like uh, uh stop the child trafficker, and it's like like inappropriately touching a child to show that he was interested, uh, so then he could later bust the child trafficker. I mean, oh wow! I mean, th- I mean, uh, this is like a really ragtag, unprofessional team of people doing this. Yeah, it is. And not. It- yeah, go ahead, Casey. And Hutchinson is like a billionaire, and I think he he got a lot of his money off like these defense contracts selling body armor. And he's he's not a CIA agent like Tim Ballard was, but he proudly says on his resume that he was trained by the uh, CIA and experts in the kind of Mossad um, martial arts. So he's had CIA and Mossad training, and I think he's on like the FBI uh, training board of directors. So he definitely has his ties to uh, intelligence and. Being the kind of big money guy, not only behind Operation Underground, but also the kind of the movie as well and, and the movement, uh, you know, a big billionaire. And, and it's interesting, like they're they're banging for money, but, you know, ba- Ballard's buddy Hutchinson has, you know, a billion dollars and probably could have funded it himself. Well, Casey, do you want to start getting into uh, Ballard and his background? Because this guy definitely has quite the origin story. <laughs> This is a trigger warning. His first job out of college was working for the CIA, which he says he did for less than a year. And one thing that I, I've learned about CIA agents is they rarely leave the CIA. They just kind of work for the CIA and other facets. Um, went to college in Vermont, and this is to study like terrorism and um, politics uh, and government, et cetera. And after that, he becomes like an adjunct professor, but he makes his real big name and he becomes a special agent slash undercover operator for Homeland Security. And this is where he starts, you know, doing his undercover work to try and stop child trafficking. And this is where he gets his basis. And I guess this is where he meets all his former CIA agent and Navy SEAL friends that he recruits when he starts Operation Underground, which is a... Nonprofit, which I, I think they definitely have to, you know, work with like the Haitian and Colombian governments to to even operate in these places. So they definitely have uh, intelligence ties and, and government ties to kind of work in these countries. And I guess it's, yeah, it's a big sting thing. And he mostly just captures like the the pimps and the uh, and, and the children, but he doesn't really ever capture who's actually doing the sex trafficking or who's actually buying the children. It's usually not the poor black and brown people that he, you know, captures along with 
Homeland Security or local forces. They're usually uh, richer, whiter uh, pedophiles who, you know, get these children for whatever use. And, you know, there's even reason to believe that some Haitian children are even used for, like, organ trafficking. And it's really interesting here that he's worked in Haiti and that most of the, you know, the stories on child molestation uh, slash uh, sex trafficking are really coming from, you know, missionaries, uh, UN peacekeepers and people that are really supposed to keep the peace and there's not these kind of evil pimps who you come from the community uh, thing. So, and it's interesting that I think that Ballard is a, is a Mormon, but he's also a, a Knights Templar, which has a very crusading, uh, crusading motivation. So I think he, in going not only to Haiti, it's a kind of, kind of savior missionary complex where the Mormon churches are building a whole bunch of Mormon churches, temples in Haiti. So the, the real big idea is to convert all these Haitians to Mormonism, which is really interesting given the Mormon church's relation to race. For years, you know, they believed that Black people were cursed and they wouldn't like Black people in the ranks, I think, until like the 70s. But they still have this crusading mentality that I've seen in Jamaica. There's all sorts of Mormons in Jamaica. And unlike a lot of religions, they very actively recruit, even when you even when they're undaunted, you know, a lot of people don't want to become Mormons. They don't care. They just keep on going. So I think there's a lot of Mormon missionary motivation, Christian crusader going on with uh, with Ballard. And it's interesting that he does work with or did work with Glenn Beck on another type of scam, which was the Nazarene Fund, in which they were supposed to save, you know, 5,000 Christians from Afghanistan when the Taliban came back in power. They really didn't seem to care about any of the Muslims who might have had some problems in Afghanistan, but they just kind of wanted to save the Christians. So it's very Christian right wing slash State Department, CIA, Homeland Security agent. Um, he just reeks of an agent for me, seems like some type of control thing. And I do think that he's definitely getting some media help, at least from like the Fox News angle, which is way more corporate than the kind of QAnon uh, background cult push that that a lot of people attribute the movie success to. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't think the um, I in a weird way, I think Operation Underground Railroad and Sound of Freedom, all this stuff, I think it's a little bit more sophisticated than the QAnon op. And I will call QAnon an op. So, oh, I mean, I don't know if you guys agree with that. But... Oh, it, it absolutely. I, I know it is. I, yeah, it is. It's I have absolute, absolute this pretty much for what I've been filing for several years now, but it is. Um, but a few other interesting things here about Ballard uh, that I wanted to highlight real quick. He had already testified before Congress in 2015 on human trafficking. So as far back as eight years ago, he was starting to get a platform for this. And then in 2019, Trump appointed him to a public-private partnership advisory council to end human trafficking. And another really interesting thing that you guys had already uh, brought up a little bit are his connections to Utah's current Attorney General, Sean Reyes. So a few other things about Sean Reyes here that I want to highlight. Uh, in 2020, he was challenged. He's a Republican. And in 2020, he was challenged in the Republican primary by David Levitt, a man that we'll be probably talking about here later on, who I will say now 
has had a close uh, ties to Mitt Romney for many years. So keep that in mind. Now, Sean Reyes, one of the interesting claims out there about him is that he is a cousin of uh, Raymond May Sigsig, who was the president of the Philippines from 1953 to 1957. And this is quite fascinating because he was put into power by a infinitely curious and incredible larger than life figure known as General Edward Lansdale. Lansdale was a notorious psychological warfare guru who won, who ran the CIA and the Pentagon's first major counterinsurgency operation in the Cold War years in the Philippines. And it was effectively the model for what became Phoenix in Vietnam and so many other light efforts across the world. Lansdale was a trailblazer on so many levels, and he was especially close to Meg Say. So it's really interesting that Sean Reyes might be a relative of this gentleman, very much so, especially when you realize the true extent to which Lansdale and his accolades have dominated the National Security Services for many years. But that's something that will uh, be covered in depth in my forthcoming book. As for Mr. Reyes, another really interesting thing about him is that he reportedly received $50,000 from the Kingston family. This would have been back in 2016 when the family was under federal investigation for nearly half a billion dollars worth of tax fraud. So when the federal authorities contacted Reyes about the money he had received from them, he claimed it was unspent in escrow, but it later came out in 2020 that the money was already depleted before Reyes was contacted by the feds in 2016. Oh, because they must have actually gotten the money even before 2016. Uh, but anyway, he would, of course, claim ignorance of any wrongdoings on behalf of the family. Uh, so certainly that's interesting that this brought him uh, right around the time that he was really an emerging force and had already secured the attorney generalship. So why is that important? Who are the Kingston family? Well, for those of you who don't follow fundamentalist Mormon sects, the Kingstons are an absolute heavyweight. In fact, they are by far the richest of the fundamentalist Mormon sects, speculated to be worth close to a billion dollars, if not more. They own a vast variety of businesses, including security and athletic facilities, a casino and auto service, repair and bail bonds, dairies, energy and fuel concerns, farming, insurance, mining, loan companies, pawn shops, vending machines, storage, real estate, and so much more. In 2007, the order bought an arms company known as Desert Tech. In total, it controls close to 100 businesses across several Western states. And part of the reason why it's been so successful is because members of the congregation are used as a virtual slave labor force for these businesses. And if you don't believe me on that, watch Escaping Polygamy. It's an excellent docu-series that goes quite heavily into the Kingston family and how it uses its uh, members of its congregation in this fashion. They effectively own nothing. They live in houses that the church owns. They have their money in banks that the church controls. So I am not kidding when I say that they are maybe just a step or two above being indentured servants here. Anyway, many former members reportedly were put to work by the order since they were preteens. Members, as I said before, overloving live in houses owned by the order. They work up doctors, banks, law enforcement. I mean, everything is done by the church, okay? Now, the Kingstons have ran afoul of the law on several occasions, especially for welfare fraud and massive scam, which they refer to as bleeding the beast 
So this involves non-legal wives filing for welfare benefits while lying about the identities of the fathers, okay? Because again, so many of these women have kids from multiple husbands, and it's easy to run these kinds of scams. During the 1980s, the Kingston uh, Order, I should say when I started the, uh, when I referred to the church, I'm talking to the Latter-day Church of Christ, just part of um, the cooperative society and the so-called United Order that this is all based around, which is a big thing in fundamentalist orders, the whole concept of the United Order. But anyway, getting back to the old bleeding of the beast, the Kingstons were fined over $350,000 by the U.S. government after they investigated it in 2016. And again, as I said before, there have been complaints going all the way back to the 1980s for this. And again, $350,000, you might be thinking that's not a lot of money. Well, okay, it's not that much money. But again, this is a group that is worth nearly a freaking billion dollars. And they need to get welfare benefits for their members who live in abject poverty in facilities owned by this church, quote unquote. Yeah, just, just think about that for a moment. And if that's not enough, in 2018, Isaiah and Jacob Kingston were indicted by the government for over $500 million in tax fraud, as I said before. The group was obsessed with the Book of Mormon's whole white horse prophecy, which led to an obsession with creating a master race. All right. And this was to be managed through incest. Connie Rugg, the daughter of the family patriarch of this group, John Ortel Kingston, stated, quote, My father experimented with inbreeding with his cattle, and then he turned this to his children. Ortel is described as having married a series of nieces and half-sisters. Tradition was passed on down to Ordell's sons. David Kingston, who is one of the major figures in the church, was convicted of marrying and maintaining an incestuous relationship with his 16-year-old niece, Mary Ann Kingston, during the 1990s. And this practice supposedly still continued into the 21st century. The Salt Lake Tribune had found that close to 65, quote unquote, marriages within the order involved girls under the age of 18 since 1997. All right. So this is a group that Sean Reyes, Timothy Boward's great friend, the guy who's going out in these missions with R, is taking money from. A group in which a major figure would rape and marry his 16-year-old niece okay think about that guys when we talk about the actual purpose of this group <laughs> sorry about the rant there um <clears throat> casey you brought up an excellent point there so what is about this sovereign military order temple of jerusalem it's uh quite an interesting thing on mr ballard's cv yeah, so both him and Paul Hutchinson, his partner, and Sean Reyes are actually all members of the Sovereign Military Order, Templar, Temple of Jerusalem, also known as the Knights Templar. Now, this organization got its start off in the Crusades, and they were helping Christian pilgrims to the Holy Lands, which were occupied by Muslims at the time in, in Jerusalem. And... They would also become like bankers and eventually they become like a fighting force. They were definitely crusaders and invaders. They did a lot of fighting, but they became a sort of like a, a bit of a secret society to a point where they actually threatened um, King Philip of France. So King Philip of France became threatened by the, the Knights Templar and actually 
he had them all arrested. And then when they were uh, tortured, I guess, they confessed to being involved in heresy and also um, sodomy and kind of like ritual sex. And it came out that they worshipped a, a goat-headed demon named Baphomet. So this is the kind of weird uh, occult origins of the Knights Templar but they so they were banned by the Catholic Church and banned by the uh, all the all the kingdoms of Europe but they still inspired a lot of kind of Masonic groups here in the United States and all over the world and one of them is the sovereign military order Temple of Jerusalem who knighted you know Ballard Hutchinson and, and, and Reyes and it's unclear what exactly these new guys' philosophy is. They're not associated with the Catholic Church anymore, but they still have their own kind of crusader mentality um, in that they really feel there's a holy war going on between Christians and non-Christians, and it's up to Christians to really fight and invade and kind of redo the crusades all over again. So this is why you're seeing you know, a lot of big pushes for these people they really want to fight in Afghanistan. A lot of Templar-type inspired people are part of Blackwater. And there's another group called the Knights of Malta who are actually still connected to the Catholic Church. And they are a kind of modern version of what the Knights Templar uh, used to be in terms of being a crusading force. And a lot of very influential Americans were part of the Knights Malta, including CI directors William Casey, uh, CI director McCone, Jesus, James Jesus Angleton, who was a real big influential part of the CIA, and um, William Donovan, who's kind of seen as the, the forefather. So these these um, Knights of Malta, who you know, kind of inspire the the Templars, who we see with something about it. They actually were responsible for a lot of big CIA connected scandals in the the twentieth century, including helping like notorious Nazis like Joseph Mengele and Klaus Barbie escape from Europe to South America. Then in the 80s, they were involved in Iran-Contra, shipping medical supplies and quote-unquote medical supplies to the Contra under the guise of kind of humanitarian assistance. So these Knights Templar is a very secretive society. They're, they're Masonic. And I know a lot of people have their uh, their views on, on, you know, Masons, but which is really interesting because I think all Ballard, Hutchinson, and Reyes, I think, Maybe Hutchinson might now say he's non-dominational. So now we have all these Mormons joining a mainstream right-wing Christian crusading organization. And this is a kind of combination of you have Mormon missionaryism, which is where these kind of, you know, white saviors and we need to save the souls of these poor, black, cursed, uncivilized souls by converting them into Mormonism, which is a lot of the reason for Mormon uh, presence in Haiti. And then you have these kind of fighting missionaries, like we need to wipe out and kill and destroy these non-Christians to save the Christians, which we kind of see in his uh, Nazarene fund mentality with Glenn Beck and them kind of putting on a focus with Afghanistan. It's interesting because Ballard is also part of the Afghanistan Foundation, whose board members include Diane Feinstein and Henry Kissinger. And uh, George H.W. Bush was a real big supporter of it. So the Afghan Foundation went from being an anti-communist foundation and support the Taliban Foundation to an anti-Taliban foundation and support, you know, women's rights or 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 support the 
the Northern Alliance Foundation. So he's definitely connected to a lot of people in in high places. And I think a lot of this reason might be his connection to the kind of Knights Templar and uh, the kind of secret societies and mixed with the kind of Mormonism and mixed with the big boards he's on uh, connected to people like Henry Kissinger. So he's definitely a, a weird deep state. And I would call him a theocon. I think you have right now, you have a battle going on in our government between the theocons who are kind of religious fanatics and a lot of those are religious based. And George uh, W. Bush brought on a lot of these theocons in order to get the evangelical vote in the 2000s. And then you have your traditional neocons who aren't really religious, but they're very pro-capitalism, pro-American empire. And I would definitely put Ballard on the theocon side, but he's still with the kind of general war crusading mentality that, that both sides have. All right, I can probably feel in a little bit more interesting uh, details about the whole sovereign military order temple of Jerusalem thing. Uh, it's fascinating because this one is claiming lineage uh, from the Knights Templar, even though as Casey is uh, wonderfully spelled out there, this is basically a pseudo uh, organization that has no actual connections to the historic group. And what's more, it seems to be more in keeping with the whole network of uh, what are usually referred to as sovereign orders of St. John, which claim lineage from the Knights of Malta, just like the official quote-unquote Knights of Malta, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. Uh, but in the case of the Sovereign Orders of St. John, they allege that after the order lost its uh, base in Malta, they relocated to St. Petersburg and were under the patronship of the Tsar, which actually did happen historically. And then after, um, I believe it was Peter actually died and Catherine, if I recall correctly, came to power, they uh, ended up having to leave Russia and ended up in Italy at their current home in the Vatican. Though, as the pseudo-orders of St. John claim, what actually happened is that the Russian line went underground, relocated to the United States, and then waited about 100 years or so to emerge from the shadows and take on an active role in the world. Whether or not there is any legitimacy to this story or not is highly debatable, though I had once dismissed it as utter nonsense. I have increasingly found information sadly suggesting that there may be some basis in reality to this, but nonetheless, what is important to understand for our purposes here is that the OG Order of St. John was a group known as the Shikshini Knights of Malta. For many years, and by the way, it was known as Shikshini because it was headquartered uh, out of Shikshini, Pennsylvania, hence the name there. It was meant to be a bit disparaging to it. Um, for many years, this group was named was run by a fascinating figure named Charles Pichel, who had uh, done a little bit of work for Nazi intelligence during the Second World War, had been uh, convicted of drug trafficking, which he claimed as part of a drug rehabilitation program that he was running all the way back in the 20s, lots of other interesting stuff like that. So he sets up this group in Pennsylvania in the mid-1950s that's supposed to be this sort of comical little outfit with a lot of eccentrics who want to go around and pretend that they're knights and aristocrats and so forth. But it has a military affairs committee, and I, I want to read some names here out of it that come from the history of the Sovereign Order of St. John Knights of Malta, second edition, which Pitchell wrote himself. It's the Military Affairs Commission. General 
Lemanuel C. Shepard, who uh, came very close. In fact, he might actually have been the commandant of the Marine Corps at one point. Lieutenant General Pedro Del Valle, Lieutenant General George E. Stratmeyer, Major General Charles A. Willoughby, MacArthur's intelligence chief during World War II, and the man who directed all intelligence within the Pacific Theater there and really kept the CIA out of that whole region until the early 50s. Major General Ralph C. Smith, Major General Walter A. D. Lamentor, General J. Harry Lebrom, General Bonner Fellers, who was uh, chief of psychological warfare for Douglas MacArthur in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Colonel William A. Bennett, Colonel Philip J. Corza, who we'll be talking about in just a minute, Colonel so on and so forth, Admiral Charles M. Cook, Admiral Robert Lee Porter, Admiral Howard Herbert S. Howard, Rob, Admiral Richard B. Black, Admiral Francis T. Spellman, Admiral Francis W. Benson, Admiral Irvin J. Stevens. So guys, are you seeing a pattern here? This eccentric little order had a military affairs committee that was entirely dominated by senior military and naval officers. It's really weird, right? Well, not so much when you look at a lot of the things that this group showed up in over the years. For instance, it had close ties to the Christian identity movement via a fellow named uh, William Potter Gale. For those of you unfamiliar with it, Christian identity theology is a Americanized form of British Israelism in which white people are elevated to being the true Jews of the Bible and everyone else is considered to be a subhuman mud person. And the actual Jews are a kind of demonic force that has infested the earth. Um, but anyway, regardless, it has been implicated in acts of terrorism uh, in the country for decades. And Gale was at the heart of this and one of the major proponents. And um, when he was asked by journalist Sherry Seymour where he got the idea for all this from, he told her that he was given his marching orders by three gentlemen, Admiral John Cornell, I believe, and General Pedro Del Valle and Colonel Benjamin von Stahl. The two were both members of the Sovereign Order of St. John, funny enough. This had a lot of ties to the Minutemen and all kinds of other fascinating groups, early forms of uh, Christian reconstructionism, minionism, and they would continue to be a major figure in these paramilitary and terrorist circles for decades, even as the group broke up and shattered into different subsections over and over again. In fact, one of the successors to the Shikshini group turned up in the PACCON investigation the FBI launched in the late, 90, the late 80s and early 90s. And they were implicated, along with a group called the Civilian Material Assistance for Arming uh, the Contras during the whole Iran mm -hmm. era. So this is really fascinating because the uh, CMA, too, uh, was a group that had members in it from the 20th Special Forces. In fact, it uh, might have actually been set up by the 20th Special Forces group, which is fascinating because this is one of the two uh uh, Army Special Forces detachments that are considered part of the National Guard. And the reason for this is because they are involved in continuity of government operations. This was something that Ed Berger was able to uh, confirm through declassified FBI files that he got concerning the FBI investigation into the CMA and the Order of St. John. Many of the figures in there were part of the 20th Special Forces Group, which was a part of all these continuity operations. 
which is interesting because the 20th had been implicated all the way back in the 1960s with working with far-right groups then. Specifically, they had been providing arms and training to the Ku Klux Klan and the Minutemen. And if you know anything about Operation Gladio, which was in Europe, you know that it consisted of a plan in which a series of paramilitaries would be used in the different Western European nations to harass the Soviet forces in the event of an invasion in conjunction with U.S. special forces. Okay, so typically, as we looked upon Europe and our infinite wisdom, the only really reliable groups we saw that could be trusted for their devout anti-communism were organized crime, the Catholic Church, and former Nazis and fascists. Frequently, we worked with a lot of ex-Nazis and fascists in these militias, which is why it's fascinating that this special forces group tied into continuity of government operations would be working with right-wing groups here. Because, you know, in continuity of government, that would involve, say, the government being incapacitated by Soviet nuclear strike as part of an invasion. Could it be that these militias and so forth were being groomed for the same purposes that their counterparts in Europe were? Well, we don't know. But it's an interesting similarity. And something else is fascinating about this, too. You see, as I said before, the 20th had a sister special forces group. It's the 19th special forces group. I don't know if it was involved in the same kind of operations. I don't have any FBI documents confirming this as I do for the 20th. I will note, though, that the 19th special forces group is headquartered near Salt Lake City in Provo at Camp Williams, which is also where... Uh, the major uh, data facility that the NSA is housed, and it's about 40, um, probably like a 40-minute flight by helicopter, an hour and a half drive uh, to Dugway facilities, which is the major West Coast chemical and biological warfare facility that we have. And another interesting thing about the 19th Special Forces Group back in the prior decade Another one of these fundamentalist Mormon sects, this one centered around um, the All Right, All Red family, and uh, I believe their church is called the United Brethren. This is the really um, glossy, popular fundamentalist Mormon sect. They were the one that was featured in um, what was the really popular reality show, like My Seven Wives or something like that, or... Um, Anyway, their members, they get reality shows and this kind of thing. But um, during the prior decade, they had started to put together their own militia around 2012 in the event that, um, you know, the world might collapse or something like that. And it was strictly for supposedly the security uh, purposes of the sect. But uh, curiously, it was trained by a member of the ninth, a former member of the 19th Special Forces Group, who would continue to bounce in and out of active duty, as well as working with uh, private military companies uh, throughout the 21st century. So, you know, we don't really know if there's any correlation to any of this, but the fascinating thing about all of this is that there's always been this very close lineage between a lot of these, uh, let's just say, militia-centric groups tied to special forces and things like that and these orders of knighthood. Uh, 
guy like Colonel Philip Corzo, for instance, when he was involved with the uh, National Security Council in the 1950s, one of his jobs was to arrange the Gladio forces effectively in West Germany in the event of a Soviet invasion. And there is quite a bit of evidence I've compiled that other members uh, of the original Shikshini Knights of Malta, like Pedro del Valle, were also engaged in these kinds of activities. They had a lot of uh, reach within these immigre, Eastern European immigre communities that were long tied into things like Gladio, as well as Operation Bloodstone and so forth. And this has led some, such as the great researcher Kevin Coogan, to suggest that groups like the Sovereign Order of St. John were used as a network to stash these forces in until they were needed for a more pronounced purpose. And certainly given the close links that uh, the 20th Special Forces Group seems to have had to these right-wing groups, the fact that it was members of it were implicated in PACCON with members of the Order of St. John, well, you got to think that maybe Mr. Kevin Coogan was on to something when he made these suggestions. So bringing us back to Mr. Timothy Ballard, it's very curious that he would also appear to be in one of these orders of knighthood, especially since from what I have seen with this uh, Jerusalem temple thing, it's almost all staffed with ex-military guys, the sovereign military order temple in Jerusalem. These guys, again, can, you know, keeping up with the same modus operandi of the orders of St. John, the membership seems to be heavily comprised of ex-military men. So is, I think Seymour Hirsch said something about like all of JSOC being, you know, Knights of Malta or Opus Dei, which is another uh, kind of right wing Catholic church that William Barr is allegedly a, a, a part of. And I think you talked about uh, Francis Spellman is actually Cardinal Spellman. I believe he was the the grand. This is a different, uh, is a different Spellman. Oh, it, so. it's a different Francis Spellman. Yeah, this okay. is Admiral Francis Spellman, not Cardinal. Okay. Hey, well, okay, well, okay, well okay. speaking of different people, I have to ask, since you mentioned, you said Phil Corso, right? Yes, and yes, the same guy who wrote... This is the day after Roswell? Yes, it is. Yes, it oh, is. Oh, my God. You want to know something else? Another guy who was in the Shikshani Knights of Malta was Cleve Baxter, who was the guy who claimed that he could talk to plants through a polygraph machine. He, that's cute, right? Well, you want to know something else about Cleve? I've turned up inconclusive evidence or declassified FBI documents in his own notes that he was involved in the early uh, in uh, Bluebird. In fact, he was part of the original committee that became the Artichoke Committee with a lot of other interesting characters. That was his whole bag when he was with the military and the CIA was special interrogation techniques. And incidentally, his job for the Order of St. John was uh, interrogation specialist or something like that. Because, yeah, you know, the, the group needed its own freaking interrogation specialist who had worked with Bluebird. But, yeah, he was he was really all about talking to plants with his freaking polygraph. Like Corso was really that concerned about the reversed alien technology. Man, you're taking me down a rabbit hole now. Oh, <laughs> dude, it's, it's insane when you look at the overlap with just the orders of St. John and a lot of this like UFO and new age stuff. I mean, trust me, this is only scratching the surface. There is a lot of overlap to that. 
Oh, my goodness. Which is, again, interesting because when you look at the modern UFO field, guys like, you know, Brandon Fugel, um, Joe Firmage, um, oh, gosh, David Marriott, I think his name was, Henry Reed, who had really backed the legislation for all this UFO investigation stuff. What do all these folks have in common, huh? They're Mormons. Hmm? So it's that's another kind of fascinating thing about this when you see don't, the, oh go for it, Casey. Don't the Mormons don't the Mormons have a belief in kind of space aliens themselves too? Isn't that part of their doctrine? Yeah, they're the basically an ancient time. astronaut religion, if you really want to get down to it. Well, I mean, they're basically an American form of Gnosticism with Gnosticism itself essentially being the OG ancient astronaut religion. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that could be yeah, okay. And then you have uh Area 51 isn't in Nevada, though. And Nevada's where Harry Reid is, and he's Mormon. Yeah, but the Mormons have a very strong presence in Nevada, too. So, yeah. Um, and again, the Mormons have had a lot of long connections with these, you know, right-wing paramilitary circles. You could point to some interesting guys like say the quote-unquote serial killer israel keys who was brought up in a fundamentalist mormon family that converted to christian identity theology and then when he started planning kill kits across the united states and murdering people in multiple states he had converted to satanism it's it's actually a much more logical journey than many people would believe <laughs> All right, well, let's get back here to uh, Operation Underground Red Road here. Um, so can you guys give us a quick rundown? I, real, real quick, I was going to say the Mormon aspect of uh, Operation Underground Red Road, I think, is really important, even when you don't get into, I guess, the quote-unquote parapolitics sort of side of it, right? Because, you know, they're, the law firm that they employed, Curtin McConkie, it's a Utah-based law firm, they've been accused by three survivors of childhood sexual abuse of uh, conspiring with the Church of Jesus of Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormon church. Um, well, the, this law firm, Curtin McConkie and the Republican state rep, uh, Merrill P. F. Nelson, or Merrill F. Nelson, uh, they were both accused by these three survivors of conspiring with the Mormon church to cover up abuse and just allowing it to continue. Uh, and this, you know, this came out after Associated Press was doing uh, an investigation into this law firm, Curtin McConkie, uh, doing a catch and kill sort of operation where they were trying to silence, you know, uh, victims of sexual abuse within the Mormon church. So. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of interesting angles you can go with this, but that that same firm is, you know, paired up with Operation Underground Railroad. No, that's definitely very relevant in all of this. Um, we'll, we'll get into some of possibly the parapolitical uh, implications of that here in a second. But um, do you guys give us like a quick crash course, though, on Operation Railroad that we haven't already covered? Um, is there anything else significant about the uh, kind of backdrop or the origins of the organization? Okay, so two years ago, Lynn Packer on his February 16th, 2021 um video on youtube so this is lynn packer's a journalist at american crime journal 
he's been doing the derailed OUR series uh, where he sort of takes them on. And uh, he's mainly been doing this through uh, sort of video reports, uh, slides on uh, YouTube. So, I mean, if you're expecting to get like a written thing, you know, it's a bit harder. He mainly does video audio stuff. Uh, But anyways, I'm going to read from the transcript of this, if I can, real quick where he's talking about one of the raids that Paul Hutchinson, this Utah millionaire, was on. During a subsequent raid in Mexico, a sex trafficking trafficking suspect took Hutchinson next to a purported prostitute to show him the weirs. In an interview, Darren Fletcher, co-founder of the movie production company Behind the Abolitionists, which is the documentary that precedes uh, Sound of Freedom, describes what the video shows. So Darren Fletcher, the producer uh, for this this documentary, The Abolitionists, says, it's a scene where the trafficker turns to Paul Hutchinson in Spanish and says something about touching this girl's breast. And she lifts up her shirt and he touches it. It's on hidden camera. When we got it in the office, we said, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? We showed it to Tim Ballard and he said, don't show anybody, just put it away. Um, it goes on. Hutchinson admits there was the second incident. Uh, some other things here. He then denies that he did this. Hutchinson says, no, I didn't touch anyone. But, you know, Darren Darren Fletcher says to Ballard after this that, no, we need to get rid of him. He's a liability. Uh, and uh, Fletcher says they have audio where on one occasion a cameraman told Hutchinson, you can't be so sexual with kids. Fletcher described at least two video clips showing on one occasion Hutchinson stroking the arm of a child prostitute and another where he touches the breast of a prostitute. I'm sorry if I, I'm like kind of like uh, just reading that is like difficult because you're like, oh my God, it's so, you know, gross. But like, I I think there's like a real dark side to all of this. Uh, and some of the reporting Lynn Packer has done on it really exposes that. Uh, but I, I I just think that's fascinating that, you know, this Utah millionaire has been accused essentially of sexual assault. And I mean, this was part of ORU's operations, and he's getting accused of this during the operations. No, I mean, it's definitely a fascinating aspect. And just based on what I've seen here, it also fascinating seems... and grotesque. Yes, 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 yes. So sorry if I sound like uh, what's the word? Um, a little broken up when talking about it because I'm just like it's hard to even talk about because you're like, Ugh. oh, oh, you know? it's it's probably a good thing that you're not going to tackle this next subject that I'm getting into. You can't hide, you can't hide, you can't hide from the falling sky. Right. Video, 
right. So one of the reasons why it's very interesting that they're so fixated on Mexico and putting this narrative here uh, has to do with the legacy of fundamentalist Mormonism in Mexico. All right. And kind of gets into why just say Operation Underground Railroad might have an interior motive for trying to highlight so much of the human trafficking angle in Mexico and supposedly linking it to the cartels and things like that. So to understand how truly insidious this might be, I need to explain Libertinism to you all here right quick. This uh, deals with uh, the Church of the Firstborn, which was established in Mexico's Colonia Liberan in the mid-1950s, and that's in Chihuahua, I believe. So anyway, in 1959, this church acquired a very interesting member. His name was Earl Jensen, and this guy was described as a former FBI and CIA agent well-versed in, quote, electronics and skullduggery. So he had recently retired from the CIA at this point after serving a stint as a, quote-unquote, security attache at the American embassy in Tel Aviv. And it was then afterwards, I should say, that he decided to sign up with the Church of the Firstborn. He became absolutely enamored with the LeBarons, and especially one of the vine patriarchs, Herbal LeBaron. In fact, he was so taken with Ervil that he decided to make his daughter Christina one of Ervil's plural wives in 1963. At the time, Ervil LeBaron was 38 years old, and Christina was 13 years old. Ervil eventually bestowed the honor of making Christina his legal wife in 1966 after they were wed in Arizona. So what a blessing that must have been for her after she got to marry this guy when she was 13 in Mexico. Eh. Anyway, Jensen and his family had already relocated to Colonia Baron, a, which was a community with no electricity or running water at the time, and the closest medical help was 40 miles away. Ex-CIA agent with his 13-year-old daughter in tow. That's, that's really interesting, right? So... Erville LeBaron had quite a colorful life along with the last of his quote-unquote church. He first came to the attention of the FBI in 1963 when he was reported for a possible role in the Kennedy assassination. By the 1970s, Erville was deeply involved in arms trafficking across the U.S.-Mexican border. He was said to have links on the one side to the September 23rd League in Mexico, which was a communist movement. But in the U.S., he was tied in with the Minutemen, supposedly. And this was incidentally right as the Dirty War was really starting to kick off in Mexico. Irville founded his own patriotic society called the Society of American Patriots, or SAP, in the mid-1970s, despite the fact that he actually had spent most of his adult life living in Mexico, no less. But anyway, uh, it soon forged links with a lot of the usual suspects in the U.S., such as the Posse Comitatus, which the previously mentioned William Potter Gale had links to, the Ku Klux Klan, and the good old Aryan Nations. It was also during the 1970s that the infamous LeBaron family feud broke out. So for years, Irville had been attempting to murder his brother so that he could take over the Church of the Firstborn. He did manage, uh, he didn't manage to kill his brother quite uh, during this time frame, but he had managed to kill several other family members and the head of a rival polygamous sect. 
That would be Rulon Allred, who was uh, the patriarch of the previously mentioned uh, Allred family at the time. In 1977, Orville got a couple of his wives to murder Allred in uh, Utah. It was uh, quite a big deal at the time. And uh, Orville also had one of his own daughters murdered while displaying an uncanny ability to elude authorities on both sides of the border for nearly a decade. So when it was all said and done, between 35 and 40 people's deaths were attributed to Irville, which got him the moniker of the Mormon Manson, which is probably pretty fitting. And the killings even continued for years after Irville died in 1981, uh, with at least the last official batch of killings occurring in 1988. All right. So during the 1980s, Irville's remaining Mexican followers became deeply involved in trafficking, both stolen cars, and probably narcotics as well. And they were allegedly collaborating with the cartels. So in theory, the family cleaned up its act after the 1980s. Colonial Baron is now a, actually, I think it might even have changed its name, but it's, you know, a wealthy American-style suburb right there in Mexico. But the LeBarons, they just keep making headlines. In 2019, for instance, they had a feud breakout with the cartels. So during that year, two family members were murdered in Colonial Baron. So the family mobilized their media resources, which resulted in a vice documentary called The Mexican Mormon War, which came out in 2012. And it compelled Mexican authorities to deploy troops to Colonial Baron during that year. All the while, the family continued to uh, supposedly or were suspected of trafficking weapons into the country. And if you've seen this documentary, a member of the LeBaron family sits down in front of the camera and says something to the effect that originally we were going to go out and kill 10 members of the cartel for every LeBaron they killed. But we decided to try it this way first. Okay. Nobody goes on camera in Mexico and says they're going to kill 10 members of a cartel for every member of their family they kill, unless they're a LeBaron, okay? It just, that doesn't happen, okay? Unless you've got some serious power behind you. Yeah, and I have to be honest. I Every time I hear about this crazy, I, I've heard about the LeBaron family. The, the, this is like a real-life version of the family from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My God. Oh, <laughs> Go yeah. on. It's getting better, man. Okay, so in November 2019, there was a major incident in Sonora. This is when that whole Mexican that whole massacre occurred. It basically a convoy of fundamentalist Mormons were making the trek from Sonora to Colonial Baron, and they were ambushed. In total, 17 people were being transported in these three uh, three vehicles. 14 were children, three were women. There were no adult men, and no one was armed. And most of them had dual Mexican-American citizenship, and several were members of the LeBaron family. So in the subsequent ambush, nearly 200 shell casings were found that were fired from AR-15 type assault rifles at the vehicles. Some of the victims were potentially burned alive. In total, all three of the adult women were murdered along with six children. Five of the other children were injured in the assault while three were unharmed. And if that, uh, well, okay, so if you guys recall, too, this was a big incident. In fact, Trump tried to use this as justification for deploying um, federal troops, specifically JSOC, into Mexico uh, to deal with the cartels, which is really interesting. But again, why would the cartels go out and ambush 
a largely a convoy comprised totally of Mexican Americans with serious political connections murder the adults and numerous children that's pretty extreme even for the Mexican cartels well that brings me into another fascinating connection the LeBarons had during this whole time frame and that revol and that involves Keith Ranieri of Nexium Infinite you see this cult uh, actually had links to the LeBarons. In fact, uh, the ex-member Mark Vincente, who uh, would later become a major whistleblower, was actually filming a documentary with Keith Ranieri in Mexico featuring the LeBarons. <laughs> this is the same guy that did the uh, What the Bleep Do We Know documentary, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the same guy who did the What the Bleep We Did documentary. He joined Nexium, was making these documentaries from Ranieri, and then he was involved in doing this one where Keith Ranieri, it's priceless. You can see pictures or footage of this, I think, in the uh, the docuseries that Netflix did on Nexium. It's Keith Ranieri sitting around with the LeBaron family, giving them tactical advice on how to deal with the um, the Mexican drug cartels. <laughs> Yeah, the parents really need to know how to deal with them from Keith Ranieri, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so anyway, family patriarch Julian LeBaron has accused of receiving funding from Nexium between 2012 and 2016, which he, of course, denied. But it is interesting that many girls uh, from Colonial LeBaron ended up at these girls' schools that Nexium was running in the United States. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's really interesting, and may maybe maybe just had a little something to do with why the cartel felt the need to ambush a convoy with the LeBarons and murder some of their kids. Who really knows, right? But what we can say is that the Colony LeBaron setup is very connected. In fact, again, if you go back and watch that Vice documentary series on the Mexican-Mormon Wars, you can see one of the LeBaron family members bump into a member of the Romney family at a golf course, and he talks about how they're neighbors and good friends and all this other kind of stuff. Um, Wasn't one of Mitt Romney's cousins, um, didn't he move to Mexico? At a, at a, I think Mitt Romney definitely has some Oh, yes, yes. No, you're right, Casey. You know, Mitt Romney's family has lived in very close proximity to the LeBarons in Mexico for quite a few years. Yes, yes, yes. No, they're, they're, they, they know the LeBarons quite well. Which, again, is why it's it's fascinating that when you look at a group like Operation Underground Rescue, when they go out to do battle with these pedophiles and stuff, they want to focus on Mexican drug cartels and not this family with ties to the highest ranks of Utah that just happened to have a well-documented relationship with Nexium. It's weird, right? Oh, my goodness. All right. So, do you guys have anything else you would like to add about Operation Underground Rescue Railroad? Excuse me. <laughs> Someone was connecting it to Carlos Slim, and they said he was one of the funders. And I know he's also a kind of notorious figure for people on the right. I'm not sure if this is like a a rabbit hole. It might have been like Q and on post about it, but they definitely showed some picture of a lot of people connected from Carlos Slim to. Uh, Tim Ballard and even him being involved in the funding of the movie, which would be an interesting connection given now you're you bringing up the Ballards. And 
I just really think that there's again to put the 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 parallels to the kind of movement behind it, which is way more than the movie. You know, I bet the movie's really bad. It's almost like a Tyler Perry phenomenon where you got all these people just who are dedicated to watching your your product because of a kind of identity. You know, I'm a Christian or I'm a, I'm a support this because I'm I'm white. I'm a Christian. I support this because I'm against child trafficking, and it's, it's really an amazing phenomenon what uh, Ballard has been able to do because, you know, you're seeing like Indiana Jones and all these big billion dollar franchises with actually marketable stars. I'm like, all due respect to Mira Savino, I think, I don't know if she's been in like a blockbuster movie in 10, 15 years. And I, I definitely, this would be a movie one would think would be like straight to Tubi uh, without the massive marketing, polit political marketing campaign done by uh, Ballard and Hutchinson. But I think he's definitely CIA as well. So there's definitely like there's always ulterior motives with CIA. And I think if you look at a lot of the the child sex trafficking, you've seen like Blackwater do it in Afghanistan. You've seen DynCorp, who's another uh, military contractor, get in trouble for sex trafficking. And I think these kind of wars and exploitation and poverty, that's what brings sex trafficking. And these guys, you know, don't, don't do not really seem to care about stopping war or poverty or the basic causes of sex trafficking, which isn't, you know, devious people going into white neighborhoods and taking white kids from two parent homes and, you know, turning them into prostitutes. That's very, very rare. Mostly sex trafficking is people of color in poor countries with maybe a one parent household where there's a disaster going on, where there's massive poverty, where these parents, you know, can't take care of these children. So I think that best way to fight, to fight child trafficking is by fighting child trafficking and war and fighting groups like the CIA. And, you know, if you, if you look around from the CIA, from people who like Cardinal Spellman, who I you know brought up earlier uh, wrongly, but he was definitely connected to J. Edgar Hoover and um, Roy Cohn. And like, they would have their own like little boy parties. And this guy is a real big part of like the Knights of Malta and the kind of um, crusader mentality that Tim, Tim Ballard has. So I think it's a, a kind of real gross hypocrisy for these kind of grand crusaders and, and warmongers to also change claim they're doing it to stop child trafficking. So what I mean, we've mentioned Mexico a lot. That comes up in the real case of the arrest of Earl Buchanan. What's interesting though is the I think the movie focuses more on Honduras and like Colombia for some reason. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if you can spitball, but. Well, I think in general, they've been trying to really make, I mean, in terms of um, the Mormon church, they've been trying to make a lot of outreach in general in Latin America and a lot of these other, you know, kinds of areas. And like we've been sort of talking about before, it does seem like this is a sort of subtle form of propaganda not just for sort of the quote-unquote q narrative but also to get converts into the church as well um so i think that this is just in general one of the reasons why i think that it's being marketed so much for latin america and then on the other hand as i been... I, I was going to say there definitely is that political element because i i think one of the kids in the movie gets sold to the revolutionary armed forces of colombia which, which Marxist Leninist, so it's like anti-communism, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, again, it's just you know, it's like the total, you know, counterpoint to like what's actually happening. You know, it's like they're trying to put the narrative out here that like you know, yes, we have these you know heroic 
white crusader knights that are going into the developing world to rescue these these poor children even though it's in a lot of cases these wealthy white individuals with dual say mexican-american citizenship living at these fortified plush communities and say a country like mexico with support from say the mexican army uh, with links to, say, a group like Nexium, where there might be some serious you know, human trafficking possibly unfolding that are doing this. But, you know, you, you, that's not the narrative that you want out there. You want mm -hmm. the narrative that Sound of Freedom is trying to put out there. And I think that, um, especially since there's been a major push to bring in more converts from Latin America, which... I think, you know, is very wise on the part of the LDS. Um, you know, if you, because again, I'm really into a lot of like high strangeness kind of circles. I mean, there's a big discordian presence and what have you in Brazil and a lot of these other countries. There's a lot of interest in ufology and the occult and a lot of other things. And Mormonism is, as I said before, a kind of quasi ancient astronaut slash gnostic religion it i do think has a certain appeal to that kind of mindset uh again i don't think it's a coincidence for instance when you look at how the new age developed in the west coast it really uh, came out of a lot of states that uh, previously it had very strong mormon presences so this would be again a very appealing region of the world to put a certain narrative out there along with a lot of the other stuff that we're seeing going on right now. Definitely. I, I think too, uh, you know, given all the things that have gone on with the Mormon church with sex scandals or like even, I mean, recently what, like the Warren Jeff's case, right? I mean, I don't know. I almost feel like the, you know, a Mormon movie studio, like angel studios, which we didn't really talk about Angel Studios, but they have an interesting history. Them doing a, a movie like this, Sound of Freedom, about sex abuse and, and child trafficking, when you have all these skeletons in the Mormon closet, I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like this movie is like a way to divert people away from, you know, Mormon sex scandals. Well, yeah, and that, you know, it kind of brings me up to another point that I wanted to get into a little bit here, which is the whole, um, you know, the satanic ritual abuse narrative. So I had talked before previously, I don't think Timothy Ballard has ever tried to sell that, but Jim Caviezel has definitely made reference to that. And, you know, you're seeing it crop up. I mean, Ballard has made reference to adrenaline. Okay, okay. so yeah, yeah. But he, he, in general, Sound of Freedom and OUR try to be more they want to flirt with QAnon but not go all the way. That's why I think it's interesting to me this is much more sophisticated than QAnon. They they can potentially get more people to buy into the BS but than they can with QAnon. Yeah. But see it's interesting because concurrently with like this going on, you've also seen somebody like Teal Swan become, you know, a major sensation online. And you know, again, they've supposedly had these documentaries out exposing her even though she uh, was actually the one who put up the funding for the documentary that was on hulu and um a lot of the stuff like the waterboarding thing seems to be totally bogus but what's not is the fact that till swan has made repeated references to satanic ritual abuse she's claimed that i believe her parents were part of like a whole satanic cult and all this other stuff okay and 
she supposedly came to these revelations after sessions with Barbara Snow, who uh, is a therapist who uh, was quite notorious for um, the satanic uh, ritual abuse hysteria in the 80s and 90s. She was accused of implanting false memories in her patients and all kinds of other interesting things like that. And I say it's interesting because of in light of other allegations that came out of Utah, specifically involving Sean Ray as his opponent in the Republican um, Attorney General primary in 2020, Mr. David Levitt. Uh, for those of you unaware, Levitt was accused, along with David Lee Hamblin, of uh, engaging in satanic ritual abuse, I think eating babies, um, you know, all kinds of other stuff like that. Uh, but the thing about David Lee Hamblin is he really does seem to have uh, been molesting his patients. Uh, for those of you unaware, he was a licensed therapist. And then later he um, became involved with this box. It's allegedly Native American church that was doing peyote uh, ceremonies. But it yeah, this is basically like a bunch of white people that have like 165th of like Native American ancestry that are, yeah, it's basically a, a drug trafficking if we're being perfectly honest about it um this is really how a lot of these churches were used in the west during the 90s and the knots um, as a means for a lot of individuals to abuse claims of native american ancestry and use it as a legitimate cover for administering masculine and things like that and in the case of Hamlin, what appears to have been happening, why he was doing these sessions with the church or therapy sessions, because he was also a licensed therapist, he was hypnotizing people, he was giving them mescaline, he was sexually abusing them, and then he was implanting memories into their minds that they were being, in, that they were involved in some kind of satanic ritual abuse. So there actually was real abuse taking place which probably did involve Hamlin's kids and so forth. But as far as can be told, the satanic stuff was a total fabrication. But again, this is, he was first investigated for this, I should point out too, in the 90s. And then once again, this stuff started to come up again in the last couple of years. It's implicated David Levitt, who was a rival of Sean Reyes. It's coming at the same time when you had Teal Swan making a lot of these claims you see people like jim Cazil tied into ballard and operation underground railroad making these kinds of claims and again this is interesting in light of where some of these people are connected obviously reyes and ballard have close ties to a guy like donald trump david levitt by contrast is close to mitt romney uh, this goes into the whole bush family who um you know, have had a bit of an issue with Trump ever since Jeb was uh, humiliated in the 2016 election. So, I mean, this is to me why this is especially curious. I almost wonder in some ways if a lot of this stuff is being put out now in 2023 more for the Republican primaries and possibly as a way of um, putting pressure, let's just say, maybe on some of the more Romney-aligned factions uh within the republican party to uh maybe yield to guys like reyes and uh, some of their other backers uh, do you that's guys an interesting theory just because i i wondered why this came out when it did 
Because it has been politically astroturfed. I think anyone denying that is crazy at this point. Because, you know, as soon as this movie came out, you had Tim Ballard and Jim Caviezel going on, like, Jordan Peterson's podcast. And then every right-winger had, like, Tim Ballard and Jim Caviezel doing media appearances. So, I mean, the whole thing felt very astroturfed. And the question I was always asking is why? You know, what's the political purpose? And I think you give it right there. Yeah, because again, I mean, these, you know, again, officially, I'll just say officially, you know, the LDS is not linked to these fundamentalist sects like the Kingstons or Warren Chess sects, which is the fundamentalist church of Latter-day Saints and so forth. They are, in theory, not connected. I'm just going to stress that for legal reasons. But there has often been a general lack of interest on the part of the state of Utah of pursuing any of these groups, even though there's a lot of evidence that they are involved. Well, I mean, obviously a litany of crimes, but I mean, you have things like, say, the whole lost boy phenomenon, where a lot of uh, male kids who are born into these sects are basically given $20, a backpack of clothes, and then left 100 miles away from the community and told to never come back again. Many of these kids, incidentally, end up working as prostitutes in Las Vegas and surrounding areas, and it's led to some theories that there might be a certain, let's just say, coordination behind all this. So this is a state where this kind of stuff is happening throughout you have a lot of figures on both sides of the arc. As I said before, Reyes is tied in with the Kingstons, okay? He's linked indirectly to some of these sects. Mitt Romney, his family has lived next to the LeBarons, who are tied in with Nexium in Mexico for many years. So everybody's tied in with all of this, right? But it seems like they are willing in some capacity to try and spin these ridiculous narratives for political gain. So... You know, again, if people are going to try to sit here and argue that in some capacity that Ballard is actually, you know, the lesser of two evils in some case here, no, he's not. I mean, maybe a guy like Mitt Romney is more noticeable in some of his connections, but I mean, the same network that Ballard is a part of is tied into the same shadowy cults, the same sketchy behavior. So, yeah, it's quite a service, to put it mildly. Um, Casey, do you have any other thoughts on this, sir? Just the kind of interesting way they've kind of managed to manipulate the whole theme of anti-slavery and abolitionism. Like, of course, they call themselves the abolitionists. Um, Well, even the name Operation Underground Railroad, right? Yep, yep, yep. And I think he's like even talked about Uncle Tom's Cabin. And then there's a picture of Tim Ballard, and I believe it is Paul Hutchinson, like, cradling these children while you have like Abraham Lincoln and uh, Harriet Tubman, George Washington, who's probably mad that people are taking away his slaves. And as, as all the people, so it's, it's very interesting how they flip how the fight against, you know, legal slavery, which, you know, was a time legal in the, in the States and they're kind of moving against that in terms of something, which is a kind of whole new breed of, of, of sex slavery, sex trafficking, in which you have, uh, Happens a lot of times in poor countries where you know children are, again, like I said before, they don't really have uh, parents involved in their lives and they're able to be sold away. But I think it would be interesting, like the reaction. Let's say if you had a Haitian or Colombian family 
who traveled to Utah and said they were saving all these child brides from these, you know, subsects from LDS or uh, I don't know the difference between like, you know, I, I have child prostitution is horrible. And but what's the difference between a child prostitute and a child bride who's one of like 13? I don't know. They're both being abused for sex. Both there's no level of consent. So I would like to see a sound of freedom too, where you have some Haitians and Colombians running up in Utah and freeing all the child brides from the the Mormon subsex. Yeah, that would definitely be priceless, man. Uh, yeah, break into the headquarters of the Kingston uh, family and uh, pull away the uh, the child bride. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people would never believe that there would be child brides in the United States, only unless you've never seen the court transcripts from the Warren Jeffs case. I think God at one point he brought out like five of his freaking wives to watch him. Um, what was it? That lovely phrase they use: "Oh, consummate his marriage with his like twelve-year-old bride" or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but just keep in mind, it's only Muslims that would do something like that. Oh gosh, and the Muslims that do that, and even have the ones have the boys, were really supported by the CIA. There's the whole like bocce boy, uh, Afghanistan kind of trend of you know these rich warlords and people keeping uh, uh, boy kind of sex slaves. And the CIA was reported they were kind of covering up and even enabling these kind of bocce boy organizations. So I would like to see Ballard like try and fight sex trafficking in the CIA, fight sex trafficking in the Mormon subsect rather than going all the way to a whole nother country and operating a vigilante group. Oftentimes, you know, he's working with that corrupt Haitian government. He's working with uh, the Colombian government. And again, yeah, like um, JG said before, we had the the bad evil rebels who were also drug traffickers. There were drug traffickers and sex traffickers. So the bad evil communist rebels are are messing up Colombia, and then it's the good government who you know the government has their own ties to their own cartels and i wouldn't be surprised if the, uh, well, that, that that's the not not to interrupt you but that's the other thing that i think is interesting i don't know if either of you want to comment on this but like i mean from my perspective i keep saying i i really do think this is a much more a slightly more sophisticated op than QAnon. i keep going back to that because you know i think like I think a person could watch Sound of Freedom and not pick up on the politics. Like, I think there are people that watch it and they're like, well, it's just against, you know, it's against sex trafficking. You know, we should all be against sex trafficking. We all agree on that. And it's just like a, a Rambo type movie. What's wrong with this movie? Right. But like, then you like people don't make the connection of, oh, it's also doing this whole anti-communist propaganda thing. It's also saying you know, oh, God damn the government, you know, they can't do anything right. Uh, that's why we need vigilantes like uh, Tim Ballard. You know, there, there is yeah. like a little politics in all of it, but it's 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 not as, for lack of a better term, it's not so crazy as QAnon where it will like turn off a potential normie from watching it. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's a little bit more sophisticated than the type of BS that has been spewed in the past that's similar to QAnon. You know what I mean? Like, I, I do I do think this was, like, a, a slightly more polished version of QAnon in a way that was more digestible for some people. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, if anything, it does seem to kind of harken back to, um, you know, the heyday, as we've sort of been alluding to, of 80s action movies, which, I mean, I certainly think is 
intentional because just so much of that stuff i mean like the stallone the schwarzenegger movies i mean it was just it was a very subtle form of propaganda throughout that whole time frame for a lot of these you know covert operations and you just kind of continuously see that in a lot of these movies you know the government can't handle it it's there's this need for these macho alpha male white men to go down there and just do what needs to be done you know I did an episode on the whole Call of Duty franchise, which is all CIA like interventionist kind of propaganda. And even even if you if you follow it, like there's even episodes where you you need to kill like JFK and they Yo, take yeah. you it, to Casey. Did you do anything on there was a Call of Duty game that came out I think a few years ago that's about the Cold War, but they literally at the beginning of the game are referencing like John Bircher propaganda. With like uh, that G. Edward Griffin video of Yuri Bezmenov, the uh, yeah. Soviet defector. And I'm like, they're literally using a, a freaking John Birch Society produced video as the opening for this video game. What? Well, Oliver North was a consultant for the game, which is kind of crazy, using a kind of, you know, drug trafficking uh, cartel affiliate as a... Uh, no, that makes total as a, sense because as a head propagandist, yeah. The stuff all comes out from like originally with Tom Clancy. Uh, I mean, that was what was it, the uh, what was the ops game or something like that that a lot of the later Call of Duties ones were based off of. But Clancy, you know, the, the one I'm thinking of is the the Black Ops Cold War, which literally yeah, the, the trailer they literally were using a John Birch video for it. And I'm like, oh my god! But I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, Steve, it comes out of that whole. You know, Tom Clancy is his own weird world. Yeah, well, I mean, he had all the links, again, to just, I mean, a lot of these figures in the Reagan administration. I mean, just his whole, I mean, basically the entire... Well, he, he was connected Clancy. to, what's his name, uh, Steve Pichniak, uh, Pichniak yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, who, yeah. who was connected to Alex Jones, but who yeah. was also in Italy when when freaking uh, Aldo Moro was assassinated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I'm saying. He was tied into a lot of you know very sketchy guys like that and then i mean this pitching a guy i mean he's a dude who later turns up again in sort of q adjacent sectors too right so i mean that's like what i'm kind of saying i mean it was already kind of blatant uh baked in with these kind of franchises i think when you go back and look at clancy because i mean even before the the video games, I mean, just, you know, the whole Jack Ryan franchise. I mean, again, this was total Cold War fear porn for um, the right, you know. I mean, it absolutely was. So, you know, it's it's always been there, but it's definitely fascinating that you're seeing a lot of this stuff being rolled out again. And, um, you know, we've kind of talked about how, like, you know, they sort of changed the narrative to where it was like terrorists and what have you. But with the, you know, the whole situation with Ukraine, with the situation with Taiwan, you got to kind of wonder, I mean, how long it's going to be till they flip the switch and uh, start bringing the great powers back into these narratives as well. You know, I was going to say, too, it's interesting from the movie angle. It is kind of funny how it parallels some of the 80s, like, super machismo Cold War stuff, because... You know, Angel Studios is basically like a little, it's a smaller studio. It's not like one of the majors, right? But it's similar to the 80s where, you know, a lot of those Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson, even the early Van Damme movies, they're all made by Canon Studios. Yeah, I was going to say, Canon Films. Canon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, most of them came from Canon Films, which, you know, I mean, I love my, I love those old Canon movies, but they basically are just like 
crazy propaganda films. Yeah, I mean, they totally are. And that, that's an excellent point, too. But yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, and just sort of illustrated, too, you didn't need, you know, massive financing. I mean, Canon did have some financing, but yeah, I mean, it was able to churn out just a barrage of these independent action movies that really kept up the propaganda assault throughout the 80s into the early 90s. Uh, and now it looks like we're getting to uh, experience the great revival of this system. God help us. <laughs> Why? I, I will say this. I think the canon films are far more entertaining than anything. Yeah, that's the sad Angel thing. Studios is going to give us. At least the 80s movies were good, man. I mean, now we don't even have that anymore. Uh, well anything any closing thoughts here before we sign off gentlemen I think I've gotten out everything I, I'd like to say I would love to join you guys again man sometimes it's been a great conversation I've learned a lot you're definitely a real bastion of knowledge Stephen so okay. definitely a lot about Mormonism about even about because I studied a lot about Knights of Malta and I learned a lot of new things about you in terms of Operation yeah you're giving Glass, me like you know. a crash course here man this is like 101 <laughs> Knights of Malta and Mormonism yeah yeah, so no. I mean, no, we no, ended no, up talking about Phil Corso, and I'm like, wait, that <laughs> Phil Corso? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a rabbit hole. I, these shows are. I mean, it's a it's like a going down a rabbit hole that turns into an acid test. You know, like yeah. it is through the looking glass whenever I'm on this show because we go into some like everything is connected and everything will get weird. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, yeah, we will definitely have to get all three of us back here again here to uh, discuss something in the future, no doubt. Um, but again, I hope everybody listening to this has had as much fun, quote unquote, as we have had uh, recording this. That is, again, you know, to emphasize that you can have true fun when you're talking about incest and pedophilia. And like, <laughs> you know, we did our best, though. Uh, but anyway, as always to you guys, thank you so much for listening and your support. And good night and good luck to you all. Uh -huh. It's raining fish and frogs outside The situation's serious The earth went flat the sun went black and it's making me delirious. And I'm watching it all from this quarantine window, thinking, ooh, what a time to be woke. Yes, and I'm laughing just to keep from crying. It ain't funny, even if it is a joke. I'm talking about the Twilight Zone. Yeah, man, I'm talking about the Twilight Zone. On a long, rugged road, a long way from home I got these blue pills sitting on my nightstand, baby And I feel like they was made just for you They won't exactly get you high But you might feel what it's like to lose I got some red ones, too I keep them next to the blues and man, it will go straight to your head It takes about 18 months to kick in good And my brother, you'll be seeing red It goes with the 
twilight zone Yeah, man, it goes with the twilight zone Been waiting out here for years, man, what took y'all so long? Well, old Morpheus, man, he stuck out his two hands He said, take your pick, brother, yeah, man And I gobbled them both up Natch And then it's Oh no Oh no Now the end of the world It looks mighty fine Stumbling around Cold candy flippy Yeah man Whoa At first it made me sick Till I caught on to the trick And now it's Oh yeah Down. I made a note to myself, I was gonna sort it all out If I could just make it back to town But for now I'm stuck in this quarantine cloister Hit me up, boys, we'll have us a time I'm taking the rest of my red and blue pill stash I'm gonna chop them up into purple lines Color for the twilight zone Yeah, man, it goes with the twilight zone I'm gonna do one more bump, then I'll be over the hump And now it's, oh yeah 